The Gospel lesson is taken from Luke chapter 12, beginning at verse 13. Hear the Gospel of the Lord. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, This is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, You have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. In the musical Fiddler on the Roof, uh, we encounter a poor, harassed, Jewish peasant community in early 20th century czarist Russia. I'm sure as you know in the play, the main character, Tevia, Tevia is the father of five daughters, he comedically sings a song to God entitled, If I Were a Rich Man. And he speaks of all the comforts that wealth would bring to him. And of all the fine things that he would lavish on his wife. He speaks of the grand house that he would build, which has a third staircase leading nowhere, just for show, if you remember the song. And then toward the end of the song, apparently aware of his less-than-pure motives, he tells God that if he were wealthy, he could go to the synagogue more often and spend many more hours studying the holy books. That, he says, not quite believably, that would be the sweetest thing of all. But the cat is already out of the bag And uh, Tevye is sure, he's certain, that wealth would be an unmixed blessing, a boon that would greatly enhance his life. In fact, when someone reminds him that wealth can be a curse, Tevye says, then may the Lord smite me with it, and may I never recover. It's a seduction to which we are all prone. If I only had X amount of money, then I could do Y. Now, 
The impoverished uh, community in The Fiddler on the Roof is, is one whose economic life would not be unlike the community to whom Jesus tells the parable from Luke chapter 12, the parable that we're looking at this morning. If anything, Tevye's community may have been more prosperous than many of Jesus' contemporaries. And so it's this people, this people who Jesus feels need this warning. And so that should make us all the more eager to hear the word in this text. While the parable is about, it's about a rich man, it's about a rich man, the warning of the parable is forcefully applied to the largely peasant crowd of Jesus' audience. How much more, then, does it apply to us? So I want to look at the text in four Four parts. The first one is the occasion. The occasion. And by that I mean the occasion which provokes the parable. The second, uh, so the second point is Jesus' um, opening principle. His opening principle. Third is the parable. And fourth is his closing principle. So there's the occasion, the opening principle, the parable... The closing principle. So, what's the occasion? First, the occasion. Verse 13, a man in the crowd interrupts Jesus and he says, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So he's, he's treating Jesus as if he's one of the rabbis who would pronounce on cases of inheritance law in the Torah. But the man is not really asking for arbitration. He wants Jesus to execute the decision that he's already made. Tell my brother to do what I've already decided to do, please. And Jesus responds to the interruption with a good deal of disapproval in verse 14. He, he says man, which is Jesus' way of addressing him as a stranger. Who appointed me a judge or an arbiter? Between you. He's basically saying to this, to this gentleman, do I look like a lawyer to you? You have courts and you have judges for those questions. He's saying in a rather blunt fashion, this is, hey, this is not my job. I didn't come to settle property disputes. There's a lot of wonderful social services I could offer. But I have a mission from my father, and I'm not going to be deflected from it. I'm not running for your local municipal county court judge. And so, being the master teacher that he is, however, Jesus doesn't allow the moment to pass. He actually ignores the specific request, and then he forces the man and the crowd with him to look at themselves. You can see this in verse 15. He switches. He's, he's speaking to the man in verse 14. He says, man, who made me an arbiter? And then in verse 15, it says, he said to them. And so now he's addressing everyone. He's addressing not just the man, but the whole crowd there. And that brings us to the opening principle. He says, watch out, 
or be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Very forceful language is used here. And so the phrase be on your guard means to, to, be a, to take aggressive action, to be, to be vigilant, to ward off covetousness. Covetousness is, as Paul tells us, idolatry. And so you have to be aggressive with it. You need to continually watch out for it. It doesn't go away. It's as if Jesus is saying, better to lose a property dispute with a pure heart than to win one with a covetous heart. So he continues, he says, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Like Jesus, when Jesus says your life does not consist in your possessions, he doesn't mean your spiritual life. He means your life viewed as a whole. He's saying something like abundance will not necessarily improve your life. In fact, it will often make it worse. As any study of the winners of the lottery will demonstrate. Jesus has, and we see this repeatedly in the Gospels, he has a critical view of wealth. There's no getting around this. That doesn't mean it's a completely negative view of wealth, but he has a very sharp-edged, critical view of wealth. And I think it's important for American Christians in particular to come to terms with this. It's often said... And, and not without warrant, not without warrant, that wealth is neutral. It's how you use it that matters. Well, that's almost true. It's true with an important caveat. If we mean wealth per se, you know, a stack of dollar bills standing on the table, uh, is, is neutral, it's not evil, and it can be used for good, then sure, that's fine. But here's, here's the rub. Wealth, especially the way Jesus sees it, and that's the way we should see it, wealth is not neutral like a hammer is neutral. I mean, a hammer can be used to build a home, or you can use the hammer to maim somebody. But the hammer itself is completely neutral. Yet, guess what? Jesus has no parables on the seductive dangers of hammers. Hammers are neutral. Apples are neutral. Lots of things are neutral. Jesus doesn't go around talking about neutral things the way he talks about money, though, does he? So whatever you want to say about money's neutrality, Jesus doesn't think money is a nice hammer. He never says... No man can serve God and hammers. So for Jesus, wealth is a power. It's a force. It's a, it, it actually has, like, being. He views it that way. It's a thing that, if left to itself, seduces. It competes with God. That's why he has to say about mammon, no man can serve God and mammon. Apples don't compete with God. And so wealth has to be laid hold of and sort of stripped of its mysterious allure and its charm, profaned, if you will, 
and then used for good. This is why Jesus uses this forceful language, guard against covetousness. You guard against it by actively using wealth for the kingdom. You lay hold of wealth, you profane it, you desacralize it, if you will. And then you use it for good. Otherwise, it turns out that the wealth will be using you. Now, the hammers in your garage, they're not using you. But the wealth in your bank account, it's a power. It can be using you, manipulating you, skewing your priorities. Now, remember... The, the crowd, the them being addressed here, are all people that we would regard as very poor. Covetousness is not limited to the well-to-do. The poor can covet with the best of them. And the middle class, fabulous coveters, magnificent coveters, the American middle class. Covetousness is not a progressive income thing. It doesn't discriminate. It would be a big mistake to think, oh, it's a parable about a rich man. So it's really not applied to us. No, it's a parable about a rich man, the warnings of which are spoken to peasants. And that brings us to the parable proper. He tells them a parable, verse 16 the, the ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. Notice, the man's already rich at the start of the parable, and on top of that, he has a bumper crop. His land has produced plentifully. And of course, we thank God for this. The, bount, the bounty we experience in life is a pure gift of God, as is all wealth. Right? Deuteronomy tells us it is the Lord who gives you power, power, to obtain wealth. This is, a well, this is a well-to-do man. So in verse 17, the man has a little chat, a little soliloquy with himself. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. This, this man seems to be particularly self-absorbed. He uses the word I six times. In two verses, and he uses the word my four times. My crops, my grain, my goods, myself. The guy refers to himself ten times in a space of about this much text. Either himself or his stuff. He, however, did not make the land produce plentifully. He doesn't conjure grain out of the dirt by his business insight and acumen. But like we often do, he forgets. He forgets that he's laboring as a creature with divine gifts and divine aptitudes. And he labors in this theater of wonders, which is already adapted by the kindness of God to our, our, bra- our intelligence, our brains, our creativity. The world is suited for us to work in it. I read a while back about a man who got sick. He was an unbeliever. And he went on and on about how God had nothing to do with his recovery. He recovered, thankfully. Um, 
The people in the hospital, he said, the people in the hospital get all the credit. Now, I'm all for giving the medical profession its rightful praise. But I had a bunch of questions. And they would be questions like this. Who made the electromagnetic field used by the MRI machine that they used on you? Who put the properties in sand to allow it to be turned into semiconductors for the tech, all the technology that saved your lives? Did somebody in the hospital do that? Did I miss this? By the way, who gave all those plants the healing properties to be used in those drugs which restored your health? The COO of the hospital? Did these people create themselves? Who gifted them to extract all these wonders? And we could go on and on and on and on here. Who placed man in such an extravagant position of dominion? Completely, we're completely blind to this a lot of the times. All we focus on is the human, the human labor, the human component. Not realizing that the Lord has poured out this extraordinary set of gifts to enable us to do these things. He gives us power. The most incomprehensible thing about the universe, Einstein said, is that it's comprehensible. Talk about the first stunning gift. The first stunning gift that leads to, to the ability to do technology and medical restoration and the like is simply that the universe is somehow in sync with your cognitive faculties. That didn't have to be, and you didn't make that happen. So God bless all the good doctors and nurses who tended to this man, but none of them did any of these things or 10 million other things that are necessary. Did they create the water? You know, we could go on. I think you see the point. We labor to create wealth, but if we're like the man in this parable, we end up seeing our wealth solely, solely as the product of our own labors. And that type of person is an idolater. And an ungrateful one at that. They just assume all the other gifts and say, assuming that all the other gifts are there, look what my work did. So this man has forgotten a lot, hasn't he? He's forgotten a lot about the kindness of God which has enabled him. So his dilemma in verse 17 is that he has nowhere to store his, clock, his crops. I, I, don't, I don't know where I can put all this stuff. The, the fourth century bishop, Ambrose, Ambrose of Milan, who was critical in the conversion of St. Augustine, he said of this text that the man forgot, the man in the parable forgot that there was ready storage in the mouths of the needy. There's always a place to store your abundance in the mouths of the needy. But this man's not thinking about God, and he's not thinking about the needy. His solution is in verse 18. And as far as it goes, it's a fine business solution. This is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build larger ones. And there I'll store all my, good, you know, my grains and, and, and my goods. That's the plan and there's nothing wrong with the plan per se. 
Jesus is not criticizing legitimate business plans for expansion. Let's make that clear. The issue has to do with this man's disposition, his ingratitude, his covetousness. So, we've seen his present plan. His plan for the future comes in verse 19. And I will say to myself, you have plenty of good things. There's the you again. He keeps talking to himself about what he has. You have ample goods laid up for many years. He has a nice retirement nest egg. And I think something important comes into view here. Covetousness, the craving for stuff and possessions, is often linked to anxiety about the future. But we worry... We worry because we want our economic futures to be secure. And so we fret. And so if we're able, like this man, we hoard. Only we don't call it hoarding, we call it prudence. But, but there is a security issue here. There's an anxiety thing. Part of the idolatry of covetousness is the idolatry of seeking a kind of security that no one's guaranteed in the world. And the parable will make this clear in a minute. Again, there's no criticism of financial planning here. Certainly the Lord is not doing that. But the, the key question that should drive all planning and expansion type activities for Christians is, how do I maximize this wealth so that in the future years of my life, I can be the most effective for the kingdom of God. Right? That's, the, that's the question we should be putting to ourselves. It's not like expansion is bad, but it must be for the sake of the kingdom. And if it's not, then we come under the warning of this text. <laughs> so, once this man determines that he will say to his soul that he has ample goods laid up, notice, for many years, got good, goods laid up for many years, Once that's established, his counsel to himself is relatively simple. It could come right out of your favorite retirement investing commercial. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Right? And golf a lot. The golf part's not in the text, but it would be in the American version. So the word for merry here is a very colorful word. It means to celebrate and enjoy the good life. So his retirement plans... Again, these things are all, it's, it's good to enjoy the good things of life, of course, but we can't say, Jesus doesn't say everything in every parable. This man's retirement plans include a lot of self-indulgence. Notice, there's nothing in his retirement plans about, or his future plans about God, or about the kingdom, or about the mouths of the needy. It's about him eating, drinking, taking it easy, and being happy. Happy, happy, happy. Frankly, there's nothing of any substance at all. I mean, this guy doesn't even want to take like a personal enrichment class at the local community college. He just wants to sit at the pool all day. Take a class on painting or something. Just relax, eat, drink, be merry. So that's a parable. It's easy to understand it. The parable concludes in verse 20 with this thunderous interruption from God. This is, it's is really important to see this. This is the only time, the only time that God himself 
as opposed to someone standing in for God, someone representing God. This is the only time that God himself speaks in one of Jesus' parables. This is it. And the only time Jesus speaks, it's the jarring address of, you fool. God says two words in all of Jesus' parables directly, and they are, you fool, to this man. I mean, the guy looks like just a legitimate businessman on the outside who's just trying to handle a, handle a prosperity and an expansion problem, doesn't he? That's, that seems kind of harsh from God. Now, it's important to see the word for fool here is, is not the word that Jesus says we're forbidden to use of a brother. Remember, Jesus says you should not say to your brother, you fool. That's a different word. This, and the word does not mean that the rich man is lacking native intelligence. It's clear he is not. A fool here means one who lives without regard for God. That's what foolishness is, to live without regard for God. It, comes, it means this man is a practical atheist. Psalm 14, verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. He might say something else with his lips, but in his heart, in the center emotional part of his being, he's an atheist. This man's an economic atheist. And God says it is folly to live this way, and I'll thunder it directly to you from heaven. And so, the Lord continues, this very night your soul or your life will be demanded of you. And so you're not going to have the many years you planned on to enjoy your stuff. And so here's the irony. He's thinking of all the fruits of his labor as if they're his own private possession. And his very soul, his very being is on loan from God. This is something people always forget. I have this and I have that and I have this and I have that and I'm a steward this and I'm expanding that and I'm doing this and I'm counting that and I'm tabulating this and I'm planning that and your very soul is on loan. You don't have it. So how important can the other stuff be? And guess what? For this man, God wants payment tonight. And so it turns out that no amount of planning and no amount of money and no amount of work can secure one from these calamities of life. Sure, money can buffer you off from certain things, but not from this. And so this man's a fool to live, because he lives his life without any awareness of the fact that he can and that he may die at any moment. And to live that way is to be a fool. I mean, in fact, it's the basic fact of human existence. You are dying, you will die, and you're subject to death at every split second. And to somehow ignore that, or miss that, or forget that for years on end like this guy has, is to really be, biblically speaking, foolish. And not only is it foolish, it's arrogant. And and it's an arrogance which the businessmen and the movers and shakers of the world are particularly prone to. 
I always think of this if I'm watching like the business channel and somebody's pontificating about the future of the Asian markets or some currency dip somewhere in the world and what assets are going to do over the next 12 to 15 months and the like and what companies are going to expand and what stocks are going to go up. And I, I, I generally like these shows. I'm not saying they're not helpful. But I, I always think of James. Uh, he says that those who say today or tomorrow will go to such and such a place and such and such a town and will spend a year there and will trade and will do business and will make a profit. James says those people are guilty of arrogant boasting. What does he mean by that? He's, again, he's not anti-business at all. But James says to talk like that is arrogant boasting. It seems harsh. What's wrong with a business plan to go to a town or a city and engage in business and make a profit? James says, here's what's wrong with it. You should say, if the Lord wills and we live. Right? The breath that's going to get all these guys on the business channel through the next 15 months, that stuff in their lungs, they don't own it. They can't predict it. They can't control it. There are 10 million things keeping each of these guys alive involuntarily as they keep pontificating about what's going to happen in the markets over the next 15 months. Now, that's not to say they're not humble men. James doesn't think you have to always go around saying this every time you plan for the future, but he's talking about the, the ethos, the spirit, the demeanor of a person. The demeanor should be, if the Lord wills and I live, then I can do something. That makes all the difference in an approach to the future. That type of person realizes, I can die at any minute. My life is not in my hands. So pontificating about the future without this, if the Lord wills and we live, James says is boastful. And this man has that problem. I'm going to build my barns. I'm going to tear them down. I've got a plan and expand. And, and there, he's never thinking, if the Lord wills and I live. And so God asks him a biting question in the parable. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? I mean, who's going to inherit all that you plan to spend on yourself? Now, we think, and I've covered some of this in the Ecclesiastes lectures, but we think that uh, we can protect, in some sense, by wills and documents. And, well, I'm going to give my, this money to my child or, or this foundation. So we think that somehow we can manage this inheritance problem. But history actually is very pessimistic here. It's littered with squandered estates. Virtually every major foundation, charitable foundation in the United States, has been subverted from the purposes of those who originally endowed it. Every university, vast majority of them which were Christian, are no longer Christian. Every denomination which preached the gospel 100 years ago, every last one of them is corrupted. It turns out that you can't control what someone after you is going to do with your wealth. Your control quickly goes to zero. You might be able to pick your immediate successor, right? But two weeks after you die, 
you know, he could, he could you know, decide he wants to be a Tibetan monk and go to a monastery. So he could do anything. Anything can happen. You don't control him. And what about his successor? Your control goes from close to zero to zero in no time. You die, you hand the money off, and you have no idea what's going to happen to it. You're comforted by the fact that you have all these legal arrangements, but what do they do? They protect the first step in what will, will, will be maybe thousands of years. Trust me, history indicates clearly that inheritances are squandered and they're subverted, and they're diverted. What are you going to do? You saved all this money, you've got all these barns, your soul's required of you. What, what? You're going to bring out your will? You can't control what those who come after you do with your wealth. They say that when Einstein uh, heard of Hiroshima, he put his heads in his hands, and he, and he said, the, the Chinese are right, and he quoted a Chinese proverb about the fact, basically the fact of the proverb was, you can't control what others will do with your work. I'm just a physicist. I didn't expect to incinerate 100,000 people in Japan. I'm just a physicist. I can't control, right? Marx can't control what Lenin and Stalin do with his work. However, however bad Marx is, he didn't slaughter 60 million people. I'll stop. Like, like, the, like the earlier examples of the wealth that God has, b- b- the bounty that God has bestowed on us that enables us to work, here there are 10 million examples. But the Lord's point is maybe even simpler than, than look at, sir, you can't solve the inheritance problem. It's who's going to have the goods that you've prepared? Certainly not you, because tonight's your last night. And this goes back to Jesus' opening principle. Your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. You can't take them with you. You enter with nothing, and you leave the same way. Everybody dies with the exact same number of toys. Zero. Zero. In between, we run around, stare at stuff, compile stuff, accumulate stuff. But everything you have is going to be left behind. The Spanish have a grim proverb. There are no pockets on burial shrouds. And so we come to Jesus' closing principle, verse 21. This is how it'll be with anyone who stores up things for himself. Right, that's the problem, the for himself. This man never thought. He never thought, maybe I have enough or too much, or maybe I can fill the mouths of the needy. So, to conclude, the Apostle Paul, you know, he says, look, when you work, you're working so that you won't be in need, but you're also working so that you have something to give to the needy. And beyond that, when you're prospered beyond that, you can enjoy that, but you have to heed the warnings of the text. And so the closing principle here is, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So that's the place where to put our our, our surplus wealth. God and his kingdom and his purposes, that's the place for extravagance. Be rich toward God. This was an afterthought for Tevia, and it wasn't even an afterthought for the fool in this text. I mean, at least Tevia pretended to tell God that he would be holy if he got a lot of wealth. This guy's not even pretending. 
So Paul tells Timothy, he says, instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be haughty, right? Not to be like this man. Or to set their hopes, Paul says, on the uncertainty of riches, right? This man just learned that sudden death is one way. It's a major way, actually, that as Proverbs puts it, wealth can take wings and fly away. Or maybe to reverse that, you can take wings and fly away from your wealth. I know a number of uh, friends of mine who lost a lot of money real fast in 2008 that they didn't think they were going to lose. And now they're like, well, I thought I was going to retire when I'm 55, but I have to work till I'm 64. So what? Those few months in the, in the autumn of uh, 2008 cost you, what, eight or nine years? Yeah, in many cases. And those are people who were damaged uh, mildly compared to the damage others suffered. Wealth has a way of just disappearing. And so the apostle says to those who are rich, he, he says, look, there's no, there's no judgment in being rich. There's certainly nothing intrinsically wrong with it. God has blessed you. He says, just be, be rich in good works. Be generous. Be ready to share. You don't have to feel guilty because you have things. This, this man's problem was not his abundance. It was what the abundance did to him. And so he tells those who are rich, lay up a good foundation for the future so that you can, so that you have a, you can lay hold of what is life indeed. So if we're like that, if we're that type of person that Paul encourages us to be, you know, then we can enjoy you know, Tevye's charm and his lovability. He is lovable. But his song is going to have to remain a solo performance. You're not going to be able to sing the song with him. Poor men can be fools as much as rich men. They both can think of wealth as simply a nice collection of hammers. Jesus thinks otherwise, and his warnings have to be heard. So let us beware of covetousness, guard against it. But also... Not just defensively, but, but offensively. Lay up treasure in heaven. Be rich toward God so that you have a foundation for the future so that you may lay hold of what is life indeed. Amen.